0: Well, uh, that was a very, very impressive program. Uh, I want to make a few observations, um, which lead to questions and an expansion of what you were trying to do in the program and what uh, w- uh, what you uh, did do, and um, also, um, of course, ask about how what the impact of this is. Uh, what you're looking for in 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 your audience and in, in the world to which it's addressed, um, first I, would, I guess partially because um, the Holocaust is extremely familiar to people um, in this country and especially people uh, who are Jewish. Uh, oh, what struck me first was uh, how descriptive the program was, uh, and I It, it of course, occurred to me that you felt this need to simply state the facts. First, the facts about the Holocaust itself and also to give a somewhat clear uh, and, I think, important definition of what it is. Um, That is, it was surely a mass murder. And uh, as you note, mass murders have occurred before and since. Of course... um, since I'm an Islamic historian, uh, I, 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 what popped into my head was the Mongol invasions, which were, uh, produced hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of deaths. Um, but we're different in this one respect, which you bring to the fore, which is, uh, of course, they weren't modern, but the, the particular point was that their object was not to simply kill a particular uh, people or, uh, and exterminate, it wasn't, the desire wasn't to exterminate. This was a, an attempt at extermination, and it's, it's, it's unique in that respect, or was unique up to that time. We'll talk a little, uh, perhaps about what, um, so to speak, um, admirers of this, uh, of this objective have done since. But it was unique in that sense, and that uh, important to convey that, especially for the reasons that you mentioned, that people wanted to kind of deal with it by doing comparisons, which are not altogether appropriate. Um, so uh, it reminds me of how little really the facts are known, uh, and I would, if I may, expand a little bit. It, it reminds me a little bit of how little the facts of all kinds of things are known in the Arab world, and. Um, and how much that is, has been a problem for Muslim thought and politics over the past, let's say, 50, 60 years, that there, there's there been a, a great depreciation of the, the notion that there are, you know, facts and arguments that need to be made, uh, and uh, so much of discourse is, is assertive. Um, and there I was reminded, you are The discussion of the use that the the peculiar way in which the Holocaust is is um, dealt with. On one hand, you have denial, uh, and uh, other people affirm it and and wish it had been complete. And sometimes, if I recall correctly, the people are the same. There are people who have both denied it and celebrated, Um, and that this particular kind of um, indifference to self-contradiction is itself also a problem. With, uh, but somehow the, the the Holocaust is a subject which particularly solicits this kind of incoherence. Um, um, and finally, that it turns out that people also notice that it's they think it's useful. The the the, the Holocaust is useful for advancing their agendas because they think Jews have. Or Israel have profited from it. Um, those were my general observations, and I invite you to, you know. Uh, but those are what struck me as as terribly crucial for in the program and and for for your audience. But also the concern that um, somehow the in, the getting used to the, the idea that either it didn't happen or what, what differences it make, has some direct impar- impact on people who are not Jews and not Israel but in, uh, have a, a powerful impact in uh, places like your native Syria, uh, Amar, that uh, we've you know, we have a I mean, they stopped counting the dead a long time ago, so it's, it's probably closer to a million than it is to 500,000 and if the population has is, has is, is, uh, has been moved around, and um, uh, and the, the a, a kind of callousness to to this kind of activity is, you know, it, it certainly can harm Jews and Israel, but it, it it harms the very you know it harms Arabs and Muslims themselves, and this is very crucial. I do want to note, and partially because. Um, uh, it was mentioned in the, uh, that there were, and this is another side that probably needs to be, you develop but perhaps is worth developing that there were uh, rather a decent and even heroic actions taken by Arabs during the Holocaust and one of the books, one of the people on books you cited was written by Rob Satloff who's here with us today and I would recommend people look at that as well, that there are of course, discouraging examples, but there are also inspiring examples in this history. Uh, I'll stop there and then uh, ask you, um, if you like, what your reaction to that is. But I'm particularly interested in what what you think most needs to to, to happen um, within uh, about this subject. Not from the not merely from the from the question of the Holocaust itself, but from the point of view of of regional discourse.
1: I may just, um, before before we even go into that, acknowledge, uh, make a couple of acknowledgements that are necessary. Uh, the people at the Holocaust Museum were very, very supportive of the program, and I think this is the first time uh, Mina is here from from the Holocaust Museum. I think and we really need to appreciate his effort. He, for the first time, the people at the Holocaust Museum allowed for the space to be used in, in, in this way and, and for, a, for an actual, a TV program to be shot inside the museum. So this is something- Providing the materials- Providing one. the materials and helping consulting on the historical aspects of it. So they have really played a, well, a very important role in helping us develop the program. Yeah,
0: that's, that's it's important to mention that. And also, when did they uh, begin to develop the exhibit on Syria?
1: And and this is this is actually the, the second uh, acknowledgement, <coughs> is that even though we, in the program itself, we said we shouldn't be comparing, that one of those aspects of trying to, uh, I don't know, you, to co opt the term Holocaust is by always comparing. You know, there is a Holocaust happening here, there is a Holocaust happening there. So, uh, but in this particular case, and as we noted at the end of the program, if there is an academic study that actually delves into a certain particular uh, mass atrocity, it's not the idea of making direct connections and say, right. oh, this is another Holocaust, but this is a mass atrocity that needs to be condemned. So I think this is what the Holocaust Museum is trying to do as well by opening itself uh, to uh, to programs like ours, by creating a wing on the Syrian uh, uh, um, tragedy, by actually also right now doing things on Myanmar, is trying to say, okay, we want to prevent the recurrence. This is not just about numeralization of a certain event. The whole idea is to prevent recurrence of similar types right. of events. So uh, this is very important uh, for them, and we, in a sense, appreciate, um, uh, Assyrian, as a Syrian, I appreciate very much the fact that uh, they have done something that my people in Syria and a lot of Arabs still have problem uh, doing, which is empathize with the, with the, with the other side. I have a, sort of a history with the whole concept of um, trying to combat sort of Holocaust denialism in the in the in and Syria and the region in general. I, from the very early days of my activism career, uh, in the late 1990s up until now, and uh, <coughs> I had an encounter on the internet. I was in Damascus. It was 2001, shortly after 9/11, uh, and I had an encounter on the internet with a professor of anthropology called Eric Gans uh, in UCLA, and he was. Um, um, a, a Jewish scholar. He was a, uh, uh, he focuses a lot on the Holocaust and the Middle East, but at the same time, he's developed a sort of a branch of anthropology called generative anthropology. And he is also politically speaking an admitted neocon. Uh, so to me, by connecting with him, I was breaking so many taboos. I was in Syria, <laughs> connecting with someone who is uh, 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 c- clearly not a fan of the regime and mm-hmm. talking about the Holocaust and talking about the Arab-Israeli struggle from a very different perspective. And he's a neo boot. So, um, but we did have a long dialogue with him that was published on an internet website in Arabic at the time. Uh, and he himself published it on his own website. And in it, we discussed the idea of, of the Holocaust and Holocaust denialism. And um, I was still, I mean, to me, one of the things that came out of this um, is that this was such a clearly easy, uh, morally speaking, event to take a stand on. I mean, you, there is nothing that I can see that can be political. I mean, the Jewish community didn't do anything to bring this upon themselves. You cannot say, oh, they committed this massacre, that They. You know, against the Germans, so they you know made them do it. Or you cannot sort of pinpoint anything, even if some people say, well, they some of them refuse to assimilate. So what, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, so it's a, such an easy thing to emphasize this and to say this is wrong, and yet it is so difficult for us to reach it in the region. And I always believe that the reason I focused on it in, in my writings at the time is because I wanted, I, I saw a connection between uh, a struggle for democracy a struggle uh, for liberation and empathy if we cannot mm-hmm. empathize with others no one is going to empathize with us uh, if you if you are not willing to how can we build bridges with anyone in the world if you are not willing to show empathy and this is something that i think our culture still struggles with to date and i think the whole idea of trying to revisit the holocaust again uh, uh, and, and, and do this program, which is, I think, the second program Al-Hurra did on the Holocaust. Robert is, uh, 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 was the first to, to, to do a program on the Holocaust in Al-Hurra channel. But the whole idea is to try to break that taboo and to try to say, look, it's not a, an, a political stand. It's not a liberal stand. It's not a, a right-wing or left-wing stand. It's a humanist, moralist stand that we need to take because it does help us grow, in a sense, as people
0: why um, I, I will uh, uh, give free range to Sam in a minute but I, I, what you just said about the, the difficulties of empathy why why what what do you attribute that and I, I take it you argue what you were saying was I mean the Holocaust is an example but that there that it's it's a quality that has been difficult to to nurture in, uh,
1: we sort of even in, in, in the inter, uh, relations between the different communities in Syria in the region. Arabs don't sympathize with the Kurds. Uh, Sunnis don't sympathize with the Alawites. Muslims don't uh, empathize with the Christians. There is a lack of empathy even among the different constituent communities of mm-hmm. the region. It's not that it's limited to a particular group or uh, or a particular time. There's, this seems to have been around for a while. In, I frankly don't know. I wish Sam will be able to to have some ideas on this issue. I don't understand it. I mean, and and, and leave it to me, a person with autism, to try to explain the need for empathy (laughs) for, for a culture. I mean, I understand it intellectually and the need of it. Emotionally, I have my own problems, but... But uh, um, uh, but I, I don't know is our culture artistic I have no idea I mean it's uh, there is an internally built problem it seems in the way we address the world or we envision the world uh, mm. and um, um, that, that I'm still struggling to understand personally.
2: I mean, you, you use the word descriptive. I think that captures it. Usually, I mean, we've aired so far 15 episodes. Um, this is probably the only one of its kind. Uh, usually, we are much more opinionated in the program. The whole idea of the program is to have these opinions out there that are not usually heard in the Arabic world in the Arabic media. Uh, but in this case, obviously, it was very important to tell the audience what happened. Because they have no idea. And because in the absence of knowledge, of course, people fill it with all kinds of conspiracy theories. I was uh, telling you just as before we entered about the kind of reactions we're getting on social media by people who watch the episode. And it's basically everything we said and described the region as having. So for example, we get comments of, OK, I'll do the math for you. There were 13,152 Jews in France. And I don't know, I love the precision. I mean, the exact figure. He counted them one by one, and does the math, and then, yeah, the six million, that can be a true number. So in the absence of the knowledge of what actually Even I can do that math. (laughs) There's all this kind of wrong information, conspiracy theories, all of that, replacing it. So I think it was very important to Basically, explain what happened, especially as uh, a lot of the the conspiracy theories, the the denialism is based on the figure itself, and that it cannot be all in the um, uh, done in the extermination camps, and thus explaining that the Holocaust is a longer process. The Einsatzgruppen that went after the the German troops right. and what they did, all these various steps. That is not just. One thing that we're talking about, that's the whole thing. The second thing is also to bring it to the region. I think it was very important to start by saying, why should we care? Because the typical reaction is, well, okay, that happened. I'll grant you that. Who cares? Why should I, as an Arab, as an Egyptian, as whatever, care? So making that case of why people should care about this and linking the question to the Arabs and the Holocaust, explaining, I think, Mina works in the Holocaust Museum. Part of his work is highlighting how the Arabic media at the time of the Holocaust covered the event. So how come your media today denies it if the media at the time was covering what was going on? They covered the Nuremberg Laws. They covered all of these. They reported about the news of the camps as they were coming out from Poland. All of that exists in the Arabic media of the in 44 and 45 and 47. Why? How come you deny it today? So highlighting all of these things, I think, was very important for the audience who doesn't have any other chance basically to know this information. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and this is actually, you see, in the, in the program that we began by stating our position. The, the, in the very beginning, we said that there is a double standard here and there needs to change. We usually end by the position. We sort of list the fact. We have an argument, and we end by having a position statement. We started by a position statement on the Holocaust because we wanted to shock people, and we wanted them to know clearly we, where, we, where we stand, that they are going to hear a program that's going to marshal facts that uh, that are designed to help them overcome what we said is a double standard on their part uh, and our, what, on our part in the region. So... Um, um, I think it's beyond marshaling facts, and and that that may not be sufficient by itself. In order to be able to break that barrier, uh, there is something else that needs to be done. Um, And I'm still, once again, this is one of those issues that I'm struggling with, because there are certain precepts in our culture that has proven very difficult to change, even 100 years after a variety of attempts at modernization have been made. I do not know.
0: What do, what do you have in mind there? Um,
1: well, I mean, in addition to having this uh, kind of lack of empathy for others uh, and, and, and a belief in conspiracy theories, we, we still don't really are willing to accept that we are not the center of the universe. <laughs> we still sort of look at everything and examine everything as if we are really still, you know, the central piece in God's uh, plan. Now I could understand on a religious Aspect you can you can feel you have a special connection with God and that you are an important or even a central piece, uh, but on a worldly aspect, you know that that idea that we really need to understand facts as they are in the world and whether however we fit in God's plan, we have to understand the current moment as it is, you know, with a little bit of objectivity. This is something that we're still struggling with, and we keep on struggling with. And I, I this again, this is one thing that. Other than marshaling facts, I feel there is a need for something to be done, but I still don't know what it is. I, I admit, after uh, I've been sort of like an activist for almost half of my life, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a total failure. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> you know, I haven't achieved a single thing that I can point. Hey, I've changed. I haven't changed a damn thing, uh, and I still. The only thing I've learned is that. Uh, there is so much that I have absolutely no idea about, and all my erstwhile certainties about certain things, not in the principles, the morality aspect, but the methods mm-hmm.
2: uh, have been shaken.
0: To flip it around, did you want to say something on that subject?
2: I mean, on the Holocaust itself and and this denialism, I think we we basically made the point that it's tied to Israel, obviously, the the belief that uh, the Holocaust is the only reason why Israel exists. And I think that um, takes us back to the point that we don't accept Israel and the Jews as natural to the region, which is a dramatic change. Meaning, when you go back to the 1920s even, looking at the Egyptian media, for example, I remember one of the first articles that began to change my world view and uh, discovered that history wasn't what we were being told was an Egyptian newspaper from 1917 describing the funerals of uh, two Rothschild family uh, officers in the British Army that had just conquered Jerusalem from the Ottomans and describing them as dying in the land of their ancestors, Mm -hmm. where their people had fought their enemies to protect their homeland. All of that there, 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 at that point in time, when you look at the Faisal-Weizmann Accords, when you look at uh, the position of various Egyptian intellectuals towards the idea of Israel and Jews, there was an acceptance of Jews as natural to the region as belonging. Once that changes, once uh, Israel is used as a cancer um, that is imposed on the region from the outside, there's a need to explain, OK, so why is that cancer there? And OK, it serves worldly imperialism, becomes the narrative of Nasser and his regimes. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, well, it can be just that. It's the Jewish control of the world and all these conspiracy th- theories that these people have. And it's the idea that the world has this guilt because of the Holocaust. So the Holocaust becomes the reason for our own misery, and thus we can never acknowledge it. And then, I mean, why does the world sympathize with them? It becomes annoying. I mean, don't you see our own people dying right. in all this narrative? There's this quote that I love. I, I read it in a book, and of course, I took about the Holocaust back at Georgetown in 2010. It's by a Polish historian, uh, Witold Kola, when he says, in the past, the Jews were envied because of their money, qualifications, positions, and international contacts. Today, they are envied because of the crematoria in which they were burned. This idea that we can't allow them to have something that the world would empathize with—that I think is central to our attitude towards it. So that would mean, <clears throat> and this is not unfamiliar in other
0: other part, other parts of our, our contemporary world, that um, the, uh, the the latter is the is uh, envy of of the victim status yeah. and. That, that would then point to the desire, really, to uh, be the winners in that particular...
1: We've suffered comf- more. Well, we've been more of than yeah. 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 Um, uh,
0: let me, uh, and then I, but we probably um, uh, open it up to uh, questions in, from our audience, but let me ask you two things, and I, I, I'm sure you've accomplished quite a lot, Omar uh, in your life. Uh, maybe not. Uh, you didn't get all the way to where you want to go, but that's my question. Where would you? What would you like to see? What would? What's your notion? And Sam too. I don't mean to exclude you from this. Uh, uh, a healthy Middle East, a healthy Arab world. What would that? What would that look like? And <clears throat> what, if any? Maybe there's nothing. But if if any, the the present foundations or, or roots of that might be that could be nurtured by things like this program and your other program, I mean, the, the, the weekly program as a whole. Yeah.
1: My hope is that we are able to uh, be more self-reflective. We, are, you know, we, we know that there were some wrongs were done to us by, by the outside world, by outside powers. But for crying out loud, we've done a lot of mistakes ourselves. Let's identify what we can actually change. I, before I can dream of changing America and the international order and how they sort of play politics towards us, can I change my reality? This is more under my control, in a sense. So, uh, I, I, and, and not criticize those who are self-reflective. So uh, we need to take a closer look at upon, uh, on our attitudes, on our mistakes, uh, our culture, our history, and try to be more honest about it. Uh, a, a, a greater openness to critical thinking regarding our past and present is really a, 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 an important first step. It's not going to lead to utopia. And, and, and this second idea, utopian thinking, please. I, I just want a slightly better life tomorrow for my kids, and that will be great achievement in itself. A uh, way to handle the mess rather than an end to the mess itself because I don't know of a way that can end the mess. And which is, you know, reminds me always of what Churchill said about democracy, the worst form of government except for the, all these other forms. I'm not an advocate of utopia. I, and I think this is something also that, that we need to get rid of is that we, we, we don't dream of a better life in the region. We always dream of a utopic life, it seems to me. We don't say it necessarily this way. We try to pretend we're realist. But when we eventually lay out the conditions of what we imagine the future to be, it's always a utopia. You know, it's not about utopia. It's sort of there's an acknowledgement. We need to have an acknowledgement that the best we can achieve is uh, a system of handling the mess and that creates certain balances between the different communities and our expectations. So, uh, which would that mean, is, in,
0: uh, I'm sorry, which would mean in this case, accepting that you're not the center of the world.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I mean,
0: the, the, this is a problem raised, you know, obviously by the very impressive past of, uh, in Islamic history the, when Muslim politics, the Islamic world, was the center of the world, and for a very long time. But no more, and?
1: In other, yes, and, and in a sense, this is, I mean, I'm always trying to sort of differentiate between uh, how we examine uh, worldly realities and where our religion tells us we belong uh, in the world. We can believe, if you want, that, yes, according to God, we are the center of his plan or her plan.
0: Uh <laughs> if Watch you yourself., <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, you can believe that. but uh, but that the way you interpret that in your analysis of worldly events should really be far more nuanced because um, um, if you look at history, none of us really belongs to the center unless they really are organized and powerful and uh, you know, they, they, they uh, um, own the worldly means of making it a reality. Uh, I think one of the main reasons why Islamists are so uh, focused on uh, the U.S. and hatred of the U.S. is because the U.S. occupies the, the, the world, uh, the role of the Ummah in their ideology. Mm-hmm. It's the Ummah that should be at the center of the universe, a Muslim nation, uh, not the U.S. So all you have to do is just call it the Islamic States of America, and lots of Islamists will be very happy with it, with all the things <laughs> that are happening right now, because they feel power. it's about power. And empowerment, and I think we need to think differently about empowerment.
2: I remember uh, many years ago, a guy I'm no longer a fan of, or probably never was, Sadine Ibrahim. Uh, he had just come out of jail uh, in Egypt after Mubarak had, um, um, I mean, taken him as a prisoner, jailed him for a while, and um, he, the American University in Cairo had an event for him there, and uh, I went up and asked him, uh, well, you see, the university is now celebrating you. It's the same university that would give my name to the state security as an activist, and, uh, and they would have me on file and harm me and so on. How do you explain this? And he told me something that um, really has been um, a true statement of all your life in the Arabic-speaking world, you are in a small room and you push the walls. Don't have any illusion that you're going to break the walls. Okay. They're not going to be broken. But all you can do is basically push. If you can just push them a centimeter, you're expanding the room for freedom for you. I think that's the goal of um, everything I do in my writings and of this program. It's. I have no illusions that I'm going to change the Arabic-speaking world. I have no illusions that Egypt's going to become a democracy tomorrow or that uh, Muslims and and Christians are going to love each other in in these countries or any of that. But all you can do is basically push and expand that room. And if enough people are doing this pushing, well, maybe you're going to get a bit of a better life. The, the other question, I think, is that's there is why should an, an American audience care about all of this? I mean, an American audience should care about the Holocaust for its own reasons, but why should they care about the question of the Holocaust in the Arabic-speaking world, or about anti-Semitism in the Arabic-speaking world? And here, I think the issue is not minor. Uh, sure, there are very few Jews remaining in the region to be harmed by any anti-Semitic acts, But that doesn't make the issue on the sideline. It's a central question to the advancement of the Arabic-speaking world, its ability to acknowledge reality. It's a central, um, I mean, without it, there is no potential for this region to advance If it cannot deal with the fact that, no, the world is not controlled by some powers behind the scenes, the Jews, the Freemasons, but we are responsible for our own failures. It's a central problem if we cannot acknowledge that the Jews are not some aliens that were implanted in our midst, that they belong to this region. These issues are should be on the top of an agenda of anyone who cares about democracy, freedom in the Arabic-speaking world, and not just the side issue that Jews or Israelis should be caring about. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: this is actually, and to build on this, this is um, um, you know one, once again the way we deal with the uh, um, entire issue of the Holocaust <coughs> and the Arab-Israeli struggle. This is where I, I see a connection, but in a sense, it's really. It sort of boggles my mind that no one, especially in, 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 in you know, in, during World War II, uh, like people like Amin al-Husseini, for instance, the the Grand Mufti and others, they didn't actually look at what's happening in Germany and Europe and say, you know what? Now we understand a little bit why we, you know, the Jews are coming to, to to Israel, and we really, I mean, this is terrible in a sense. This is we understand we probably should should do something that's that to accommodative because in a sense after '48. Millions of Palestinians, uh, well, not, not millions at the time, but now we have millions of Palestinians all over the world, citizens of the United States and Argentina and Chile and, and Australia and all over. And they, and and they are grateful to the states that took them in, and they're happy and integrated and so on. And, and yet it's, they don't see apparently, and not only them, but a lot of Arabs see the, the, the inability of us to accommodate Israel. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 Jews within Israel, you know, when we have a problem, it's okay for us to immigrate to other people, many many to, to other lands, and, and and to ask for for asylum and refuge and whatever. Now, some people will object here. Will say, but the Jews came; they wanted to create a state and take our lands. Something you really need to remember, and this is where history is is hidden, is that there was no state. We were part of an empire that fell apart. You know. In a sense, long ago, we used to go and immigrate to other people and take their land when there was, you know, there is no state. But now, within the concept of an international community in the, 20, in the mid-20th century that emerged, there were states. Otherwise, I would imagine, I could easily imagine uh, Arabs uh, going and if you know to, to Argentina or Africa or whatever and wanting to create their own colony. They have done it before. Uh, I mean, we, Argentina if, is a Lebanese colony exactly I mean. <laughs> you know you can, you can make that argument. you've actually had a Syrian president there for, for a while uh, um, but in a sense the objective look at history, this is what what we are really missing in the region is that we keep condemning conquest and colonialism uh, and yet we, when you we look at Islamic history we celebrate ours to this very day there are people crying for the loss of Andalusia. I remember, uh, in fact, in the condemnation, uh, you you remember this, Sam, one commentator of Palestinian descent uh, uh, was making after Trump announced that they're gonna move the embassy to Jerusalem. He made a long speech about it, and then he compared the Arab uh, uh, countries today to the princess of Andalusia who lost the Andalus. And I was looking. You are bemoaning the loss of a colony, basically, while you're trying to condemn colonialism and in, in, from your point of view. Uh, you know, So it, it doesn't make sense for us not to realize uh, how to uh, deal with history in a more objective way and to realize that up until this century, uh, empires and colonies were sort of part of how people interacted with each other. And in fact, the unique thing about the 20th century and onward is that. We finally establish a system of states, and we are trying to protect the sovereignty of each as much as we can. This is a new thing. The concept of an international law is a new thing. Before that, it was really, in a sense, a free for all.
0: So, if I understand correctly, that um, the the Holocaust, but also separately the question of Jews and Israel, it it it's a kind of uh, a quintessential example of the way in which um, thought does not function in, uh, at the present time, in a way in which would be not only beneficial to Jews and Israel, but beneficial to the to the people doing the thinking. That you can't get this if you could have kind of, you sort of could reach some kind of real sense about this. There would be a kind of prospect of thinking s- sensibly about a whole bunch of things, or vice versa. That it, it's really um, it's an issue that <clears throat> in the, the confusion, uh, misrepresentation, uh, this, the, 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 as you said, the blatant self-contradiction uh, goes to the heart of, of of what's wrong about discourse and thinking and so forth. The other thing um, struck me in your account is that um, what is it was at Sam's account uh, via. Or Saladin Ibrahim's account. Um, he, well, we won't talk about, his, about him uh, at length. But uh, the other thing is uh, um, that pushing against the wall. I mean, um, you know, when, uh, people of my um, age were little there um, when we were. Uh, being foolish or obnoxious or something else, our grandparents, usually our grandmothers, used to say, go knock your head against the wall. And the point was, if you do that, you'll come to understand it's stupid to knock your head against the wall. And um, it it would seem to me that um, what one would look forward to if people are knocking their heads against the wall is that they realize that it's stupid, and uh, there's a better way to to do things. It's not even really pushing it against the wall. It's trying to say, you know, there's a wall there. There are these these brute facts of life. Maybe some of them are uh, uh, harsh. Some of them, some of them might be pleasant, but you just have to sort of, you know, pay attention to them and and recognize them, and not imagine that they'll go away. That um, and, and in that regard, it seems to me—that's why I was asking—what you might, <coughs> how I don't mean specifically from this program, but it's the spirit of the program to to cultivate this this motion in uh, in the region. I mean, I'm really in the region. I mean, your audience <coughs> is not us; it's um, people in the region. To um, um, you know, whether there are things to you know, uh, to build on, some of them which are a product of really horrible things. I mean, you know, the, exactly what has gone on in Syria should cause, uh, you know, many self-reflections and many uh, much pause among people in the region and, and thinking about, how did we get to this? How did we get to this?
1: In, in, a, in a sense, you can you can um, um, see that there are a lot of people who put a lot of thoughts uh, uh, since the end <coughs> of uh, World War II and until now, into how we can, in fact, uh, build a system of international law that can prevent prevent us from asking this question. How how did this happen again? How did we get to here? And in a sense, we kept on failing because of the lack of a political will. And it still is a question of political will. uh, Because we, in fact, uh, in, in, um, I think, around 2005, when the uh, doctrine, uh, the uh, responsibility to protect, was adopted by by more than 130 countries around the world, and the strange thing is that members of the Obama administration, like Samantha Power, uh, you know, had played a role in, in fact in pushing forward and advocating this policy. In fact, in 2004, um, uh, uh, Obama well, it, was, it himself, came
0: came out of yeah an experience in the 90s when we
1: exactly had, so honest. to
0: speak had a second Holocaust in Rwanda. So.
1: Exactly, and became you know Rwanda and the Balkan situation and and, and, and Kosovo. So there was, and then we had in 2004 we had the situation in uh, Darfur, and Obama himself was actually for intervention in Darfur at the time as a as a senator. So it's very interesting to see these people when they finally came to power reverse you know all of their thinking on the issue. Yes, you can speak about the curse of uh, Iraq and. Uh, and, and you can speak uh, about also um, uh, you know, how they mismanaged Libya and so on. But at the end of the day, I think in Syria at one point, the facts became so clear and apparent what's happening, and the scale of it became so clear, and we, uh, you're already seeing uh, uh, by that time uh, refugees going into Europe. So the need for action, has never been more apparent, and yet they didn't muster the political will. They had a political vision that was that was completely uh, antagonistic to this. They wanted to deal with Iran. So the question always is going to be, how do we influence uh, policymaking in key countries? How do we muster the political will? How do we build an, uh, an awareness among the general public of the importance of... Uh, of certain types of humanitarian intervention, and so people don't say, "Oh, imperialism is coming back," and and, and you know, um, because the international system is deeply flawed when you have countries like uh, that are authoritarian and willing to commit war crimes, like Russia, and uh, and uh, you know, having a veto power and the ability to uh, to therefore stop any decision making.
0: Uh, um, but, but let me put it this: way. It has the experience of Syria? Uh, led, asked, led people within the region to say how did we come to this and what what do we need to do to um,
1: the, the key to my pessimism at this stage and my sort of uh, current despair I would say um, despite my commitment to the to the struggle on the long term is that i really have i don't see it <laughs> I, that self-reflection that that I uh, spoke about I, I don't see it I, don't, I, I think after seven years of the situation in Syria and Yemen and, 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 and all of the current mayhem unfolding in the region, I have not seen enough self-reflection among key figures, political and intellectual and religious, that can make me feel optimistic and hopeful. Oh, something is changing. You know, something, this is good. We may not have won sort of uh, uh, the battle, but something is changing. And, and, and this, is, this gives me hope for the future. If anything, it's all pattern reasserting themselves. Uh, it's as if, you know, the momentary hesitation that happened in two thousand eleven and twelve, you know, had been erased and now okay, it's back to familiar territory and everybody is very happy in a sense uh, that now they can still go back and talk about the Arab Israeli conflict and condemn Israel and condemn America and you know, we're all oh, this is the territory you grew up with, you're familiar with, now we can do it again. For a while, you know, we had to change, and, th- and we didn't know how. So thankfully, now we don't have to change anymore. Um, no, there is this inbuilt resistance to change that's, that's, I don't, that we have not overcome yet, this inertia, skilliness.
2: So our first episode was about Syria and the future of Syria. We thought, OK, it's the major issue in the region. Currently, Ammar is Syrian. We cannot ignore it. I think it was the most one we got curses on prior to this one. I still don't know how many curses we're getting here. Um, a lot of- Well, they haven't stopped. You only broadcast last <laughs> Thursday. The 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 comments, I think the, the amount of this information about Syria itself in the Arabic media is phenomenal. In the Arabic media, I mean by this Arabic language media, not necessarily by the regimes, uh, meaning that uh, Russia, for example, Russia today, the oh, Russian Arabic yeah. uh-huh. is Unbelievably um, has a presence in the Arabic media, spreads conspiracy theories on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, you see the stories about um, the, the Toyota cars that were found with ISIS, you can be, trace them to the US. I don't know what, I mean, the, the stories. My dealership on Rockville Pike. Yeah, yes. here. Uh, the same goes for the Iranian, uh, not press TV, you know, the Alam <coughs> Aliyum, which is the Iranian channel in Arabic. Mm -hmm. Again, they're very successful propaganda fronts. And they and the Syrian regimes, Mayadeen is the one. um, They have been very successful in spreading conspiracy theories, portraying Bashar al-Assad as the last, I don't know, hero of resistance against Israel, as uh, the last line of defense of secularism, all of these uh, conspiracy theories and, and views. Um, so Does I think your average
0: Sunni in the region thinks this is finds mean, this appealing? or
2: That's the question. Does he define himself as Sunni? I think it's um, for a Tunisian, for example, where the whole country is Sunni, basically. I mean, there are a few Jews and a few Shiites in the country. Um, the dividing line is between secular and Islamist Muslim. leaning. And when I visited Tunisia about two years ago, three years ago, and uh, the amount of support among secular Tunisians to the Bashar al-Assad regime, because they assume, OK, he's fighting the same fight we're fighting. Um, the same would go, for example, for the supporters of the Sisi regime in Egypt, which, uh, I mean, the regime itself has identified closely with al Assad as a fellow regime resisting the collapse of states and all of this. And the segment of the population that supports the regime is also sympathetic with the narratives of Assad. Um, I mean, you see it in evil uh, Egypt, former Egyptian diplomats uh, writing on social media uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories about the chemical weapons attacks, how it's staged, all of these. Um, so I don't think Syria has meant that. But, Everything that's going in the region, I think, has made people a bit, um, okay, so what's happening around this? Um, Islamism is in a stage of uh, disorientation, Um, the brotherhood loss in Egypt, uh, the fragmentation of the group following that, Um, the the rise and the collapse of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So the main ideology of the region is in a state of disorientation. Uh, Nothing seems to be working. Okay, there's Dubai, but you can't replicate Dubai uh, with 100 million people in Cairo, for example, in Egypt. Um, So there are no models presenting themselves. You see it in forms of nostalgia, for example. Um, There are, what, six million people who follow the King Farouk page um, on Facebook uh, about the late King of Egypt. I mean, if you're going to choose a monarch from (laughs) Egyptian history as a model, it's not Farouk, Okay. I mean, the guy's a complete failure in anything. And yet he's, why? Because there was a TV series that portrayed him nicely. There's this nostalgia for the cosmopolitan Alexandria, the real one and the imagined, what the Mm -hmm. people have built. I wrote about, for example, the new interest in the Jews who lived in the Arabic-speaking world. There are about more than a dozen novels in Arabic, written to an Arabic audience, dealing with this question of Middle Eastern Jews, Jews who used to live in Egypt. I mean, there's an Iraqi novel. There's a Tunisian. There are a couple of Egyptian. There's a Moroccan. There's a Yemeni novel. All of these. So there's a nostalgia for a past, again, real or imagined, that we no longer have. When your present is as dark as the Arab present is, and your future looks as bleak as the Arab future looks, it's natural that you're going to look back to the past, to the Islamist past, to the cosmopolitan past, to some past as the only anchor that you have.
1: The other thing I actually want to sort of, so if I want to sort of build on this, uh, a recommendation for myself and for Sam and for a lot of people who are dealing with the region uh, is that there there is always a lot of reasons to be frustrated And at the same time, I don't want to see any idealist tendencies nor our growing frustration make us fall for the fallacy and illusion of quick fixes. There are no quick fixes. It's a long struggle and we have to accept that the only way going forward is to carve inches out of the stone, uh, you know, uh, pushing the walls. Push, the walls. push <laughs> the walls. It's, well, the,
0: <clears throat> oh.
1: Which is why, I'm, you know, even when we said that an intervention in Syria should happen, it was not a quick face. I didn't anticipate it's going to lead to democracy, only that it was going to stop mayhem, and that by itself is good. Stop mayhem and, 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 and curb an authoritarian regime to an extent. But it's not that it's going to produce... Uh, 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 you know, democracy in an idealistic situation. That's why when I look at people who look at Libya and say, "See what happens to Libya?" Yes, of course, because the society was was devastated by Gaddafi. The whole idea was to try to prevent the the uh, sort of a reassertion of authoritarianism by Gaddafi by any means necessary, and then you can look forward to another. Uh, a decade or two of stability that's going to produce mayhem down the road again. So we were never going to avoid going through this when you have a system that is based on destroying society in order to survive. So dealing with mayhem eventually, whether it's today or 10 years from now, is something we all need to prepare ourselves for because the regimes that exist today are breaking the society down inch by inch and, and methodically because this is the only way they can survive. They are not about modernization. They are not about uh, renewal. They are not about uh, introducing democracy from the top and modernizing sort of Al-Atatürk. Hafez al-Assad had this chance uh, in Syria in the 80s. If he wanted to be this moderator, he could have uh, modernized he could have done it. He didn't do it because he didn't believe in his own legitimacy to do it, uh, and he had no inkling. He had no inkling to begin with. So. Neither quick fixes are going to happen, nor any hope of these regimes and the stability they provide is going to produce anything. Sooner or later, this region is going, and other parts of the world, because of the nature of the existing regime, are going to go through a dissolution, through an implosion, and we have to deal with the consequences. There is no avoiding it.
0: Well, let me in, <coughs> before we go to the question and answer, let me end on this point. I, I asked for some. Um, Starting point for the so I, it seems to me that one has emerged that is it's called <coughs> the Salmon Amor show and um, <coughs> and the sign that uh, it's is having some success is that you know uh, uh, tens of thousands of people uh, write in to attack you uh, so there's uh, they want to have this quarrel with you and maybe um, you will. Could, I trust you'll continue the quarrel and maybe make a dent in it. And then, I don't know, maybe in, in, let's say, in 10 years' time, we'll come back to celebrate. Um, we'll have you back before then, but we'll celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Sam and Amour show, and then hopefully the 20th anniversary of the Sam and Amar show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I w- we'll call on you in a minute, but uh, First, one uh, uh, I want to make clear that uh, there are two things you need to do if you are going to ask a question. First of all, please state your name, and if you have an institutional affiliation, that would be help- helpful. And then ask a question. And if you don't, I may interrupt you. Okay. Uh, right Ready,
3: Hi, I'm Deborah Weiss, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, and my question is: um, How much of the Holocaust denial do you think might be due to anti-Semitism based on religious beliefs? And also, have you thought of bringing this film to like Muslim organizations that are active in the BDS movement, like Students for Justice in Palestine?
2: Um, okay, um, I think. Um, Anti-Semitism. The the best works. Bernard Lewis's uh, book, Semites and Anti-Semites. Uh, before that, there was Elie um, Kedouri's wife. Um, what was her name? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sylvia Haim, or Hayim. She wrote uh, an excellent article about the beginning of the anti-Semitism in the region. Funny enough, it, doesn't, it didn't start among Muslims. Islam historically uh, did not have a strong anti-Semitic attitude, simply because they, the Jews weren't important enough. The main enemy of Islam was Christianity. It was the competing religion, both militarily and in terms of uh, conversions and all of that. So while the stories of the prophets' uh, conflict with the Jews were there in the text, no one highlighted them, no one cared about them. The emergence of modern anti Semitism in the region comes at the hands of French missionaries, especially the Jesuits, who begin to spread these ideas uh, just before and after the Dreyfus Affair, in especially the Levant, where it's the Christian uh, Arabs, it's the Christian Middle Easterners that begin to buy into these ideas first. So the first texts, anti-Semitic tracts that you have in the Arabic language are all written by Middle Eastern Christians and not by Muslims. In fact, Rashid Rida, the leading Muslim figure at the time, in his Al-Manar wrote um, at the time of the Dreyfus affair, um, I mean, attacking the French, how could they be so racist and prejudiced in the case of Dreyfus? Of course, he's I mean, he's not a good guy. He changes his views and, and holds anti-Semitic views later. But um, the spread, I think, is, is first among the Christians. The, there's a Russian element. Russia at the time, they, there's a fight between the Moscow Patriarchate and the one in Constantinople, and in an attempt to remove the Greeks from control of the Arab churches, they spread, they foster the idea of an Arab identity. And as a result, there's a huge Russian influence. The protocols and others begin to go through the Orthodox communities in the Levant. The change, I think you can track the change of when it becomes Islamic, when it becomes widespread, by looking, for example, at how the Egyptian media dealt with the three major uh, conflicts in Mandate Palestine. 1921, the Jaffa um, uh, clashes. The Egyptian media is 100% pro-Zionist. In the late 20s, when you have the the Wailing Wall clashes, the media is split. By 1936, when you get the Arab revolt in Palestine, the media is siding with the Palestinians. So it's during this period that you begin to see widespread anti-Semitism emerging and spreading among the majority Muslim population of the Middle East. Haja Amin al-Husseini, Radio Berlin, play a very important role in that, and then later adoptions by key figures, Sayed Qutb and others.
1: I completely agree. The whole concept is new to the to the Middle East and uh, to Arab Muslim culture, and it's tied to the introduction of nationalist ideas more than religious ideas. Yes, you can always go and find a religious text and pick up a lot of interesting information that can justify your uh, new anti-Semitic uh, tendencies, but this information, these hadith and these traditions have been around for centuries and did not produce... Any, any sort of uh, movement that can be classified anti-Semitic in, in Muslim societies up until now. So the question is why now? Because of nationalism. So it's, uh, but now in contemporary times, uh, a lot of the, so you know, this is the historical aspect, but now in contemporary times, people don't know this history. They're not aware of it. And, and so most people are actually justified their anti Semitic tendencies on the basis religious. of religious uh, uh, grounds. And uh, so right now, so now it is a religious phenomena uh, for the most part. Uh, Arab nationalism faded. Uh, so the Arab nationalism then played a role in introducing the idea, and then now sort of religious fanatics are taken over, and it's become now justified and accepted on religious grounds. And that actually creates um, a, a moral sort of uh, uh, imperative on people, modernizers, within the uh, Muslim communities to tackle it uh, as well, and tackle, therefore, these traditions that justify it. That's a, it's a tall order. This is difficult.
2: I mean, I don't do marketing. I don't know what's the marketing plan for the El Hora. I guess um, that's part of, of how it's done. Uh, it was natural to come to Hudson since I'm at Hudson here. Um, um, I'd be, I mean, it's aired to the Arab audience. We just did the the subtitles for uh, for here this audience. But the main target audience, the one that saw it on TV, the ones that sees it on our page and social media, is the Arabic speakers, and they're the ones that we want to uh, change their hearts and minds.
1: But but yes, in a sense, uh, there is. I, I see. Uh, in fact, this program uh, being aired in 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 the universities uh, and and uh, and, and uh, other institutions and organizations around the country, around the world. I would want it to be because the whole idea is for us to be able to break. The barriers. So there is a plan being developed to promote it further, and um, you know, uh, Sam and I are always willing to go ahead and attend events like this, wherever they are held, uh, in order to uh, push the message across. Because it's tied into an, to, a, to a longer struggle. As I said, my introduction to this uh, 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 issue of the Holocaust was very early on in, in in my career as an activist, because I always saw a connection between empathizing with others and peace building and democracy building. I see it as as all connected activities. I do not see it as a a separate compartment because it's so controversial. Avoid it, don't speak about it. Now focus on the issues of human rights in Syria and and, and forget about this very controversial issue. It's the same thing that, for instance, a lot of uh, human rights organizations in our region, they don't tackle, let's say, homosexuality because this is so controversial. Speak about human rights, accept this. So it's always like this in, in, in our society. Speak about empathy with others, but don't speak about the Holocaust. This is so politicized. I don't see it this way. I think, I think the issues that are always pushed to the side are the ones that need to be brought into the center. Otherwise, we're not, we not going to gain anything.
4: Right you? Hi, I'm Rob Satloff of the Washington Institute. Um, uh, first, if I could uh, um, uh, test Hillel's admonition um, about uh, uh, just a question, I do want to take and make a compliment. Is that all right? Those are permitted. <laughs> okay. um, I really want to compliment you. I thought this was uh, excellent. This was uh, informative and balanced, and went really to the heart of the matter. And uh, you know, I, I I thought it was a, a fantastic piece of work. So congratulations. Um, uh, I want to. There's a lot I can ask you about, but I wanted to ask you about one item. I'm actually optimistic about about uh, norm, what I would call the normalizing discussion of the Holocaust in in Arab societies. Um, uh, I, and one aspect I want to ask you about is the um, uh, uh, the new politics, the, the sort of the, 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 the new Arab-Israeli politics vis-a-vis Iran. And because Iran is so closely associated these days with the, um, the, the you know, state leader of Holocaust denial, um, uh, thanks to uh, you know, the wonderful Ahmadinejad, um, how much that helps to legitimize um, Arab reasonable discussion of the Holocaust. And my, my, I, I tend to think there's an opportunity here. Um, uh, to build upon um, uh, uh, you, you had in your film Nasrallah you know, it's, it's Iran and its allies today are among the most virulent uh, deniers using all the different definitions of denial that you quite accurately pointed to I think there's, 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 a, there's an opening here to, to take advantage of this and, and wanted to ask whether you've come across that in your own discussions with people um, um, and your own discussions with Arab intellectuals on this issue
2: Um, I think there is definitely something happening in the region in terms of cooperation between um, Gulf Sunni states and Israel, cooperation that has become um, Quite open, to say the least. Um, um, I mean, they they don't visit officially to Israel, but beyond that, we've seen even intellectuals that are tied to the regimes, um, the Anwar al the Saudi former Saudi general, going to Israel. Others like him. So I think there's definitely an opening on top. What I haven't seen is uh, that reflected on uh, society as a whole, meaning a message. Amar um, said something in the beginning of the program while we were standing outside that I thought was very important, which is there are Arab intellectuals, for example, that have talked about the Holocaust in English. Doing it in Arabic is something very different. So Edward Said, for example, was it was very easy for him to do it in English and talk, yeah, the Holocaust, and we acknowledge. But giving that message to the Arabic audience, I don't think Well, it was very hard for him to give that in Arabic because he didn't speak Arabic. Yeah, that's a, I mean, he spoke. He couldn't read. Let's, let's put it this way. He couldn't read Arabic, but uh, at least he could speak the language. But. Um, that kind of message, I don't see anyone doing it in the region. Um, again, uh, people like Mohammed bin Salman have come to the United States. He's met with Jewish leaders. Egyptian presidents have always met with Jewish leaders in the country and giving a message. They welcome delegations from APAC, from other organizations to, um, to Egypt, for example. But again, has that meant anything in terms of the educational system? Has it meant anything in terms of the, the media, the mass media, the, the propaganda that they give to their own people? Um, I think it's um, uh, it's something that, um, I mean, it's still a taboo. They're still happy to, to meet with the Israelis and plan what to do with Iran, but they're not happy to do it with the, their own people and give them that message. The other thing I think is that sometimes Again, I, I mentioned Tunisia uh, before when I talked about the Sunni identity. Not everyone, we, we tend to overemphasize the Sunni Shia thing. It's a Gulf Levant story. It means absolutely nothing for an Egyptian. We don't think in terms of Sunni Shia because well, we've had a Shia empire before rulers, the Fatimids. We we were Sunnis, but we still go to Al-Hussein and Sayyidah Zainab mosques to ask for God's uh, help. Um, it means very little in the the, the North Africa in general, um, despite the Iranian attempts of infiltration, of, of conversion to Shiaism, of all of that. So I think the Sunni Shia issue as a driving force for Pushing Arabs to deal with the question of the Holocaust or opening up to Israel is limited geographically to the, the Levant and the Gulf.
1: Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things also that you have to see this opening on the top is, is a bit um, um, cynical. Uh, it's designed to, uh, to, to influence uh, Western audiences again. I mean, so very much like the Arab intellectuals sort of in their address to Western audiences, you can have now Arab officials in their address. Uh, uh, Western audiences also say, "Okay, yeah, the Holocaust happened. You know, we can visit the Holocaust Museum, and uh, we promise you to do perhaps a museum in in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia or Riyadh that can be visited by dignitaries to showcase our uh, moderation." But uh, I'm not really optimistic about how hard they're going to push this agenda uh, to to as, you know in the educa- educational systems so that they can reach. Uh, their audiences because it's going to be very controversial. I mean, uh, uh, if they cannot push women's rights issues, for instance, as Strongly uh, uh, these days, it's going to be very difficult mm. to push this as well. So I'm not necessarily—I don't read too much.
0: Can't, if who can push women's rights? Uh,
1: MBS, Mohammed MBS. bin Salman, because he's the one who's making these openings. Uh, so if he cannot, you know, uh, be strong enough and brave enough to, to to take a you know a line on this uh, women's rights issues, I think he's going to have difficulties with that as well. Mm. There's always going to be internal calculation. He's right in some cases. He should be careful. Uh, he doesn't want to stir up and give uh, his enemies sort of like uh, 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 weapons to use against him. But at the same time, um, it, it does make one sort of wonder about the sincerity, whether they, they reflect serious conviction. Um, but even if the conviction is not sincere, um, there could be an opening. Uh, but it's an opening that is that should be ex- not left, to the whims of any particular ruler, there should be an external agency. There should be people, for instance, like us, who are doing the program and whatever to try to use this opening and make it real and 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 sort of make it take it out of the control of uh, the ruling elite and subject to their whims. And so we can go and push it to the to the people and create a serious grassroots representation uh, uh, in this regard. And this is why it's important to connect the issue of the Holocaust and empathy with others to, to the larger problems that are facing us in the region, that this is a way of transforming the region to the better. This is not necessarily anti-Iran, but uh, we have to protect ourselves from a regional power that is inimical to our interest as Arabs, for instance, uh, or Gulf states. You know, the, the problem with all of these scenarios is that there is a we here that's implied. <clears throat> that we don't agree on yet, is that Arabs, Levant, Gulf, Muslims, Sunnis. We haven't, it's not that there is no consensus on this. There could never be a consensus on this. And the whole idea is that can we nonetheless realize we can be one with this diversity, create a system that accommodates the diversity, or are we going to try to always try to push for a unitary vision? We all have to be Sunnis against Iran all have to be Gulfies against the rest of the region. I, I, don't, I don't know.
2: I mean, I, I would say there's just two exceptions probably to that that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Morocco, where uh, we've had visits by educators to Yad Vashem, to the Holocaust Museum here, exchanges. El uh, University hosted conferences in Morocco about the Holocaust before, um, and that's obviously encouraged by the monarchy itself and, and accepted by the regime, as well as um, individual initiatives in Tunisia, Manuba uh, University, where again the, there's part of an educational mission being done there um, by the people there to. You educate. have a new
0: Jewish representative in the in the in the legislature, don't you?
2: Um, they they ran someone in the the local council. Yeah, yeah, I don't know uh, if he sorry, won or not. Not the right one. I uh,
0: you know uh, uh, it's, uh, first let me <clears throat> say I'm, I'm glad uh, grateful to Rob for raising the question. Let's mention also his book about this subject. Uh, but uh, but it, it does strike me that um, you know arguments are one thing and experiences are another and. You know, it, it's occurred to me, it, it has impressed me over the years of uh, many years of visiting Israel and looking at the discussions about Israel. I'm not just speaking about Israel. That a, a large number of the discussions that take place about Israel uh, take place in the absence of any experience of it, and therefore it, they're, they're extremely abstract. Um, and <clears throat> If it's the case that some of this motion in the um, Let It Be, that it's just sort of the, the the central Middle East, results in visits by uh, people in the region to Israel, that might, I think, be a, a different thing, whether or not they do go to the Holocaust Museum or Yad Vashem or not. Although, if they sign up for the tour, they'll have to go to Yad Vashem. So, um, because, and there's some ad hoc evidence for this. I mean, it, over the past, uh, well, there were a couple of Saudis who found themselves in, in Israel. And I know by reliable report that one of them was a young person who was just completely astounded by Israel. You know, it resembled in no way what he thought it was, and it was very attractive because he's a young person and the kind of person that MBS is hoping will be find. Modern life appealing and synonymous. so I think it's po- in that uh, on that level. I think it's possible, and you know, then uh, the the arguments, um, or if you like, the creation of a certain amount of empathy via the, the Holocaust might be, might they they might combine in some way. But the but the first step would actually, th- I really think, is probably. Uh, something and this would presumably have to come from the top. There would have to be per- permission from the regime to various regimes for um, uh, their citizens to visit Israel, um,
2: visit, read Israeli literature, watch Israeli channels. All of that, all of that doesn't exist. I mean, the the ultimate example of this piece from the top, I think, is Anwar Sadat. Uh, There's a very famous picture, at least famous in the Arabic media, of Sadat sitting with Diane. And, uh, I mean, Sadat is hailed as the peace hero, and he deserves praise as well, of course. But the picture focuses on Sadat's tie. Tie? Tie, because it has the Nazi um, symbol, the swastika, on it. And it's like, look at this uh, Sadat, how good he was. Yeah, he fooled the Jews into returning Sinai, but he was true to our beliefs. That kind of mentality. And the kind of mentality that he himself obviously had by wearing such a tie, that tells you a lot. He was willing to do the peace treaty because he had to, because he wanted to return the land, but in his heart, he was still, in a sense, the same guy who, as a journalist in the 1950s, after they did the coup, um, he ran this propaganda newspaper, new newspaper, Gomorrea for the Egyptian regime. And a rumor had started, 55, that is, or 54, that Hitler was still alive and living in Argentina. And he penned a letter to Hitler <laughs> congratulating him on everything, and don't think that you lost. You really succeeded. That kind of mentality—that's willing to do peace but is still anti-Semitic—that's what you want to avoid.
0: Yes, <clears throat> I, I, that's for sure. Yeah. M- Mina, uh, Mina
5: Abdelmalek from the Holocaust Museum. Uh, I just want to make one point. Uh, it's not a question, actually. Thank you so much for the films. Great. Thanks for Hudson for hosting this event. Thanks for Robert Settler, for your leadership on this topic. Um, and I just want to mention that what you said, are am not exactly what the museum is trying to do. Uh, we have educational program in Morocco, Tunisia, and we are establishing partnerships in other places in the Arab world for Holocaust education. So I think in this sense, we are trying to push the walls, uh, uh, as you mentioned, Sam, uh, and I share with Robert uh, some optimism that I, uh, uh, although that I agree that most of the times in our region, the Middle East, Um, when the top doesn't really care about the grassroots or letting other people to reach the grassroots. But at the Holocaust Museum, we've been uh, very uh, working hard to actually building partnerships with NGOs and people working with the grassroots. Okay,
0: would you pass it? This lady here has been very patient. (laughs)
3: Hi, my name is Grace Kang. I'm with the Institute for Korean American Studies. Um, First, I want to say I strongly applaud this episode. I'm not a Middle East expert, but in 2000, I visited Jerusalem. And um, an Arab man struck up a conversation with me. I explained I was American, Korean American. And he rather quickly started Telling me that the Holocaust was a big exaggeration, and he, he said, "Oh, maybe 1,000, 2,000 um, Jews were killed," and I started to argue back with facts, you know, saying there were 9 million Jews in Europe and 6 million were killed. You know, so I'm very sympathetic to Amar's um, uh, respect for the facts, but also discovered that it's usually politics that overrides facts. And so my question for you today is, to what extent do you think a two-state solution that um, was accepted by both parties as fair, to what extent could that help uh, restore the memory of the Holocaust as it was factually?
1: You know, one of the interesting thing is that uh, the uh, peace process started uh, after 91 in Madrid, and then a few years later, the uh, you know the there was a, the Palestinian authorities was established, and Arafat went to the West Bank, and uh, and and now the Palestinians, the PLO, is back, you know, and in charge of. Uh, 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 the parts of Palestine that were supposed to be a state. This is the Palestine that's going to be signing a peace deal with Israel. Um, And yet, if you look at the educational curricula that have been in existence since that time till now, it's filled with anti-Semitism. And Holocaust denial. And this is a problem. So in a sense, I'm not really sure because if you waste 20 odd years uh, um, of the peace process and 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 still wait until well we 're going to have peace first, and then we look at the educational system that 's not how it works uh, if you're if you 're really convinced of of the need to Uh, live in peace with Israel side side by side, you have to prepare the grounds for it. You have to prepare the next generation. So if you're optimistic about the prospect of peace, you immediately work on the ground to prepare the next generation to be a generation that will sit down and uh, you know, uh, you know, we'll visit Israel, we'll work. There will be a lot of young people who need to work there. And there will be this peaceful exchange, because now we're accepting not simply it's a peace process, not just we're going to have a Palestinian state and we're going to go separate, uh, our separate ways. It was always supposed to be two states, but that are connected economically and cooperating. So if you really mm-hmm. believed in that, you needed to prepare the ground for it. And education is where you start. And they haven't started yet. To this very day, we don't see that kind of effort. So I think we really need to look at these issues separately, in a sense. There is something in our mentality, I don't know when is it going to change, that will always be anti-Semitic. <laughs> uh, and then the issue of peace is uh, have to be locked out from a political angle. I think this is probably why peace hasn't happened yet. Is because at the crucial moment, Israelis need to be able to trust that Palestine is not gonna be used as a bridge to, to launch war by Iran or others against Israel and undermine Israeli security. And when they look at what the Palestinians are saying about them in, 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 in school, uh, in, the, in the textbooks, about what they say in the programs, in TV programs, they cannot develop that trust. And as long that we are unaware of the importance of that element of trust and empathy, uh, I think peace will remain an elusive prospects.
2: I mean, the, the, I'm always hesitant to, uh, to give an opinion about uh, such a topic, smarter minds than I have been working for uh, uh, generations now attempting to deal with this conflict and to solve it with failure. Um, let me say there's a, um, Amar, you talked about the, the need for education of this. In a sense, we, um, and I'll speak from my people's side, Um, we went to the peace process with an idea that peace was only another mean to get what we wanted to get by weapons, by violence. There was never an acknowledgement that we went to peace because it's impossible to get what we wanted to get through the violence, so we need to compromise. The idea was we're going to Oslo, we're going to all of these initiatives, and we're going to end up with the same things we always wanted. We're going to get the state, we're going to get Jerusalem, we're going to get the refugees returning. There was never anyone courageous enough to talk to the Arabic-speaking people and say, no, we can't get these, and thus our goal, our end lines, our the result we want is more limited. And because of that, the Arab street has never understood why why we need to do any concession in the first place. Because we're going to get it anyway. All we needed to do was just convince the world that we're nice people and do this non-violence thing, because you know the violence wasn't getting us anywhere. So there was never, in a sense, the regimes never um, explained the situation to the people. I don't blame a regular Palestinian who's been told all his life that. Um, this is your land. This is you're gonna get it all. You don't need to. There's no reason for you to compromise on anything. I blame the leadership. I blame the the intellectuals in these countries of not explaining reality that we went to peace because there has to be a compromise somewhere. I think we we also need to acknowledge there. Are, many people deal with the issue of anti-Semitism in the Arabic-speaking world as, again, on the left, they they blame it as a side issue. They hate Israel, so they became anti-Semites. On the right, they're anti-Semites because they're Muslims and Islam is that. I think there's a need, uh, I'll make a controversial statement by saying people became anti-Semites first and then became anti-Israeli. And I'm willing to defend that statement historically of the development of the intellectual life and how they viewed the Zionist project anti-Semitism, the the spread of fascist and Nazi ideas. We mentioned Jeffrey Herf's book, Nazi Propaganda to the Arab World. There are a lot of works about, and there needs to be much more studies, about that influence of fascist and uh, Nazi ideas, about the links. We mentioned Goebbels' visit we mentioned Hess, there are many others of these later those that went and worked in the Arabic countries and how anti-semitism became so integral to the intellectual life that it became a stumbling block if you really want to deal with peace you need to deal with that issue even before perhaps you discuss borders or refugees
0: let me occurs uh, <clears throat> to me to add something on on this and it goes back a little bit to the first question that was raised. Um, you know, the, the, the question of the Jews in, the Muslim, in a Muslim or Arab context uh, was, I think, as Sam or maybe Amr said, you know, for a very long period of time, uh, there were difficulties, they weren't held in respect and so forth, but they were not important. They were, uh, to use a phrase from a Jewish book, the despised religion. Uh, there's a very famous and great book from, uh, Jewish book from the Middle Ages called The Khuzari, which is written in Arabic and it has as its subtitle uh, I'll say it in, because it rhymes Arad Wadalil Fidin Avelil uh, it's an, a reply and apology on behalf of the despised religion and in fact that it is despised is an opening theme in the book You can, so in, from that perspective, and I, I grant you, there were other things back in the tradition of the Hadith and so forth, but it, it wasn't, the really active hostility was towards Christianity because it was the great, great power. The problem that, one aspect of the problem that um, I think that even generally has has arisen is when it came to be the case that Jews were no longer... Despicable, uh, maybe even needed to be envied or respected. This is a big problem, and it's a problem. Uh, I, I'm following here on Amar's description. There are psychological problems or emotional problems here. How do you adjust to that? And you know, you could fill it in with all kinds of arguments about whose land it was and so forth, but. There's a, a kind of brute fact here that Israel is a successful and powerful country, and that doesn't really fit with the world as Amr was saying the world should be. It just doesn't compute, and it has to be because you can't because it's turned out that at least in Arab countries that you can't wipe it out. You just have to come to terms with, and I'm not sure you're right about Sadat. I think, he, you know, he could have worn that tie for his domestic audience without but um, <clears throat> because there was something very deep about Sadat and also a great sense of his own superiority to his, because I remember when he, when he, they were attacking him for going to Israel, he said all these people are dwarfs. You know, you know they're not they have no vision. They have no vision. And I thought, he, but I won't, there's no way of proving this one way or the other. But but that willingness to see Israel <coughs> in that light, and therefore as a, a permanent and respectable reality, and one in which where you might have something to learn from, that's that's a different... That's already a different order of of perspective, and I don't think that's absolutely impossible for reasons that what, what Rob was saying before. It may be the, an accidental uh, result of the fact that, for the time being, certain Arab countries could use the assistance of Israel in a quarrel they have with someone else. and. Uh, may need to get to know Israel more, and the, in the process there, i see, see it in a different light. There
1: is something, an interesting aspect here ah. that. Perhaps we, this is something that a lot of- uh,
0: uh I'm sorry, uh, did we go over <laughs> the time limit? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. We have to. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry,
0: we have to- uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. Um, let me ask you to thank our speakers for uh, <laughs> their.
5: <clears throat> thank you. Um...